Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncle Mark's Attic. Everyone is always cordially invited to join co-host Zach and me, Uncle Mark, as we explore a variety of interesting topics from the fields of paranormal activities, conspiracy theories, unsolved mysteries and disappearances, and lots more. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, as well as Apple Podcasts and Spotify, at Uncle Mark's Attic. Feel free to reach out and contact us with your questions and suggested topics. We would love to hear from you. So come on into the attic with us now as we go exploring and find out what mystery we are working on today. Today's episode is about UFO encounters at schools. We previously did a podcast on the government's report on UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, and a podcast on Flying Triangles, uh, which would be triangular-shaped UFOs or UAPs. We recently read the book Schoolyard UFO Encounters by author Preston Dennett. Preston began his own investigation of UFOs in 1986, and he explains that he did this in response to a number of family members, friends, and even coworkers who were coming from, uh, coming to him, sorry, and telling him about their own encounters with unidentified flying objects. He has written a number of books on different aspects of the UFO phenomena. He also has a good number of videos posted on YouTube where he speaks about the subject matter of his different books. Um, after reading his book and going online and watching a number of videos about the subject of UFO encounters at schools, we thought it would be a good topic for one of our podcast conversations. Yes. Now, uh, Preston's book actually contains uh, reports and stories regarding over 100 different school encounters. Some of these reports, as you go through the book, are very brief. Sometimes they're not even really one page long. Uh, they're just brief recaps of reported incidences. And other stories and reports go into quite a bit of detail and can run for some pages. In the introduction to his book, and I've read a number of his books, he's a very good author, very good and thorough researcher. But in the introduction, he makes it clear that he believes there are what he calls mountains of evidence regarding UFO encounters with human beings. But there has been what he also calls, quote, a ruthless cover-up, both by the United States government and the governments of other nations. And government operatives, both military and civilian, have subjected witnesses to UFOs to ridicule and have issued blanket denials about many of these reported incidents. Some of the operatives have engaged in what's called outright disinformation. And I do agree with Preston on that. I think history is... <laughs> The history of ufology is filled with plenty of uh, examples and actual incidents that, that back up what he just said there. Uh, Preston also points out that we have, here we go again, Zach, the professional debunkers who consistently attack not only the entire subject of UFOs, but they also insist on personally attacking the uh, people who report these, the witnesses, and, uh, and the people that investigate and look into these reports objectively. Uh, then there are the hoaxers who get involved in the UFO field in order to make money, and unfortunately there's been no shortage of those uh, throughout the, the history of ufology. And then there are also the so-called cult or fringe groups who are involved in making all sorts of outrageous claims and bring additional ridicule, really, onto the whole UFO field or ufology field itself. So Preston here is trying to focus on the actual people who have had and reported these UFO counters, and that's what he does in his other books as well. And he does point out that as far back as 1966, there was a group here in the, America, in the United States, uh, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, A-P-R-O, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Carol Lorenz, uh, Lorenzen was one of the uh, leaders of that group. And uh, she actually wrote all the way back then that, and this is a quote, an outstanding number of sightings of UFOs have been made in the vicinity of or over schoolyards. Perhaps the visitors hope the exhibitions over schools will influence the population to some extent. After all, children are less subject to dogmatic or preconceived notions than adults. That was one of the early groups here in the United States, uh, predates uh, MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network that I belong to. Uh, this, was, this was earlier than that. This was back in 1966. So even then, you're having reports, and we're going to go into a couple of those in this podcast, reports of actual UFOs flying, hovering, buzzing around schools and schoolyards, both here in America and then also in 
uh, other countries around the globe. So we'll be looking into a few cases now. Uh, Preston also points out that there are several generalizations that can be stated regarding the reports of UFO encounters or sightings around schools. First, these encounters almost always happen in the daytime. Second, these are not usually just simple flyovers. The UFOs in these cases tend to approach from a distance and then hover over the school and schoolyard. Third, these encounters are almost always low-level sightings. The UFOs are around a few hundred feet or less in the sky. And last, or, or fourth, uh, these are not usually brief sightings. They can last for a matter of minutes or even hours, and sometimes they occur over a series of days. And again, we'll see a little bit of all of these different things in the, in the cases that we're going to go over in this podcast. A fifth generalization that can be made about these UFO encounters around schools is that landings by the craft are actually fairly common. And sometimes these actually involve the appearance of humanoids, if you will, some type of beings that are emerging from the landed UFO or craft. A sixth generalization is that the average UFO school encounter has between a minimum of one to five witnesses. And in some of the cases, including some we're going to go over now, you have a large number of witnesses, be anywhere from 50 to 200 or more eyewitnesses to the actual incident. And seventh, in about half of the cases, the actual witnesses are elementary school children, younger children. An eighth generalization is that many of these school encounters provoke a response from the government and or also the military, military authorities. These authorities are then involved in an investigation and in some cases, I would say in many cases, an actual cover-up then uh, is, occurs. And finally, one last generalization, these cases frequently do attract media attention and reporting. So UFO encounters around schools have been reported also around the rest of the planet, not just here in the United States, but there are reported incidents from Canada, from many countries in Europe, Africa, Asia, and South America. We can also add in Australia here because we're going to be doing a case in this podcast from Australia. Uh, since the 1950s, there has been an average rate of, say, one to two of these type of schoolyard or school cases reported. And so with all of this information in mind, Zach, let's, let's take a look now at some of the reported incidents of UFO encounters at schools. We're going to primarily in this podcast focus on four encounters that we think are really among the most interesting. Each one has some uh, interesting twist to it or, you know, something that makes it a little specialized as opposed to the other incidents. But let's just do these four cases for now. Like I said, there's many more cases in the book and some of those don't have as much detail as these particular cases have. So let's hop into case number one. The first case that we want to discuss is the encounter that occurred at the Jerome Elementary School in Marysville, Ohio. Uh, this incident happened on October 22, 1954. At around 3.15 p.m. that day, a group of about 60 students were outside of the school. The children observed a bright cigar-shaped object that was hovering over their school. There were no wings or a tail, and the UFO was described as brilliant. Some of these students called out for their teachers to come outside and see this object. The principal of the school, Rodney Warrick, heard the kids and he actually came out on to the fire escape of the school. According to Mr. Warrick, it was the most unusual sight I ever saw. The UFO would become so brilliant that he actually had to shade his eyes. After several minutes of hovering... The object took off at tremendous speed horizontally. And here's where this particular incident from 1954 gets really interesting. As this unidentified flying object left the area in the sky above the school, it actually emitted a trail of what was described by multiple witnesses as white spider web-like substance. And this substance fell all around the school and the surrounding area. This particular substance, which has occurred in some other rare cases, is sometimes referred to as, quote, angel hair. That's just a term that's come to be popularly used for, for this particular type of incident and this particular type of substance. Now, one of the teachers at the school, Mrs. Dittmar, described this angel hair as the most beautiful, soft white-looking tufts, similar to cotton, slowly floating down to the ground in long 
fibers. And that's an actual quote. The angel hair fell to the ground for about 45 minutes. That's quite a bit of stuff yeah, falling out of the sky time. there, 45 minutes. Now, some of the children picked up some of this angel hair and brought it to the principal. And he said that it felt to him like asbestos. It fell in long strands and sometimes in what looked like actual cotton balls. Now, the long strands were physically tough. If you tried to break one, it didn't work. If you touched a strand only at one end, the strand would roll up into a ball and then slowly disintegrate. And if you held the strand by two ends and pulled, it would stretch and stretch without tearing. If you rolled this angel hair between your fingers into a tiny ball, your hands got a green stain on them. This stain would rinse off with soap and water. Uh, the principal actually did roll some angel hair into a tiny ball, and he left the green stain on his hands. Uh, after, at first, his hands began sweating profusely, and then after about 30 minutes, the green stain did disappear from his hands. When some of the students rolled the angel hair into a ball, it would turn gray and then disappear. The angel hair covered about a three-mile area. It was on grass, cars, telephone wires, uh, and the school principal was actually able to gather a sample, and he gave it to the local newspaper, the Journal Tribune. The newspaper then forwarded the sample to Lockbourne Air Force Base in Columbus, Ohio, but no response by the Air Force was ever made. Now, myself and Uncle Mark looked into this whole issue of angel hair. Yeah, because it is a topic of controversy, of course, and, and ongoing debate. There are some scientists who have pointed out that there are some actual documented cases of certain species of spiders, and particularly very small spiders, who have migrated on airborne cobwebs through the sky in very large groups at times. And uh, these webs can actually rain down, if you will, from the sky on occasion. Also, sometimes electricity in the atmosphere can actually polarize dust particles, and this will cause the particles to stick together and form into long strands. But in this particular UFO encounter over a school, in this case, as we read the descriptions of the angel hair provided by both the students and the principal and that other uh, teacher that was there and the behavior of the angel hair when it was touched or rolled or attempts were made to tear it, it really doesn't seem to us to fall into either of those two explanations. I have to tell you, when I was first reading these reports by some of these scientists about the, the, the very thought of spiders being up in the air and falling out of the skies as I'm walking down the street did make me pause and think, I really don't want that to ever happen to me. And also, if you just stop and think, Zach, about these descriptions that we were just reading from the students and the principal and the other teacher, I don't know about any of you or you, Zach, but there's certainly been times when I've been walking outside could be in the woods it could be just around the neighborhood really going under trees and you suddenly get that stuff on you the oh, spider web man. stuff that gets on you and i've had that experience more times than i than i care to remember and uh i find it to be a pain in the neck really <laughs> it's, it's always it's on my shirt yeah it's that's gonna... the worst i always walk through it and it's on yes. my face and then i start rolling on the ground <laughs> trying to get you know i try to do everything i can to get it off so it's an unpleasant experience yeah i'm not, not a big fan so yes it's a fear and plus it's just a mess to have that stuff on you but when these, these things have happened to me or to you or to any of you who are listening or watching us right now, uh, it, I mean, these things are telling you about you touch it at one end and it curls yeah. up. And that has never happened for me. I got no kind of green stain from it. It just gets all over me and then you know, I'm trying to I shake would, it off. I would never play with spider webs even to begin <laughs> with, so I would have no idea how these things react. But Well, we threw that in. We had to tell, yeah, we had to tell yes. them what some of the scientists are saying, and, and it's true. I just... These must be very small spiders that can get swept up by air currents. Yeah. And for this stuff to be falling for about a 45-minute period over this school and the general area there on telephone wires and cars, I mean, it's in the ground. It just, uh, it just hits me as, um, I don't know about the spider explanation. And as far as the electricity in the atmosphere, yes, I'm sure that can and has happened and will continue to happen. But again, are those strands going to have those strange reactions of, and, and you know, are they going to curl if you only touch them at one end or if you try to pull it, what, they don't break at all? These are strange. Yeah. These are very, very strange uh, qualities that were displayed by this so-called angel hair, this spider-like, spider-web-like stuff that was falling out of the sky that appeared to be emitted by the actual 
unidentified flying object that had been over the school. So we do like to give all sides to any kind of an argument or debate, when it, especially when it comes to UFOs. But in this case, I just, I just don't see those explanations as acceptable, not based on those descriptions. So real quick before we move on to the second case, I just wanted to say that I think that I find it really odd that they sent sent samples to this base in Ohio and they never heard anything back yeah. at per airbase fashion, I would say, personally yeah. from from all the podcasts we've done on That's an excellent on point. UFOs and stuff. So it doesn't surprise me that that happened. Um and I do find it quite odd. So No, I think it's a real it's a shame, but when you go through the history of ufology, certainly here in the United States, going back to, say, the 19, late 1940s after the Roswell incident and all that, it's unfortunately more typical <laughs> of what happened yeah. and continue to happen, you know, through the decades after that. It's a shame, but it was, it's very typical. There's unfortunately nothing unusual about that. It is kind of sad. I wish they would have done an analysis because yeah. we have a case coming up where there was an analysis done. So uh, it, would be, it would be helpful to, but anyway, unfortunately... Yeah, ufology's history is full of examples like that. So now we're moving on to case number two. And the second case we want to talk about is the encounter that took place at the Whitsett Elementary School in Whitsett, North Carolina. Uh, This occurred around 2.45 p.m. on October 27th, 1955. And Mm. Uncle Mark was a little over a month old when this occurred. right. Thank you, Luke, <laughs> our podcast manager and director over there. Yes, that is the year I was born, in September of 1955. So this incident is, uh, I'm actually older than this incident, too. Go right ahead, Zach. There we go. <laughs> okay, so about 120 students were outside the school when they suddenly observed a number of metallic, spherical-shaped objects in the sky above them. Some of the students ran into the school and got the principal, Mr. H.D. Lambeth. That is a pretty cool name, if I do yes, say so myself, uh, to come inside with them. He actually grabbed a pair of binoculars and mm-hmm. went outside when he saw eight objects, which looked like shiny steel balls. Yes, now, Mr. Lambeth, it's no coincidence he has those binoculars. He was a retired officer of the United States Air Force. He had flown in 46 missions as an aerial observer during World War II. So these objects, these eight shiny steel ball-like objects, were nothing like anything he had ever seen before. He watches the objects, here we go again, Zach, ejected a white, wispy substance that looked almost like cotton candy. Now, at the same time that Mr. Lambeth was observing this, a resident who lived near the school, Mrs. N.T. Newton, watched as this strange substance came down from the sky and covered the school and several acres of land around the school. She, too, described the object as looking like cotton candy. Mr. Lambeth, the principal, actually picked up some of this mysterious cotton candy-like substance and tried to burn it with a match, and the cotton candy-like substance actually emitted a yellow flame when he did this. The entire incident around this school lasted about 25 minutes, and the 120 students of that school were sent home early that day. I really hope that none of the students tried this cotton candy-like substance. I would hope Because not. I'm sure it did not taste as it looked. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> and also, these people in this story have very interesting, very cool names, I would yes. say. Any, any name that has, like, two letters in it mm-hmm. and then your last name, I think, is, is pretty... Pretty intense. So (laughs) some of these students and teachers saw what they thought was a gold or bronze object fall into the woods nearby, but the search party found nothing. Mr. Lambeth sent a sample of the mysterious cotton candy to the Burlington Labs for analysis. The lab's report came back that uh, the substance was not cotton, so there's that eliminates that, Mm -hmm. or cellulose. It actually most closely resembled spiderweb material. (laughs) But a biologist who was also given a sample of the material said that the fibers in the material were too even in size to be actual spiderwebs. Captain Murray Thornton, who was the executive director for civil defense for Greensboro and Guilford counties, also did an investigation. He thought that those silver balls were just reflections of the sun or whatever that cotton candy-like material was. But the principal, Mr. Lambeth, 
said that those silver objects were flying around and moving in all directions above the school that day, and there was hardly any wind. So, I personally think that he's telling the truth. I mean... Yes. As an experienced retired Air yeah. Force officer who had yeah. all those he's definitely He's definitely seen some stuff, so mm-hmm. I, I don't know why he would make that up, as well as the students. So, I don't know... I don't think they really had any motive, and... Uh, obviously, this Captain Murray Thornton just thought that the these silver balls were reflections. He's a I would see him as one of those professional debunkers, trying to think of any way to kind of uh, dismiss what he was saying or try and, as I said in the last episode, put it on the back burner and act like it was really nothing. So right. that they just kind of had to do some uh, damage control, if you will. Right. Remember when we were doing our very first uh, real podcast on the uh, government's report on unidentified aerial phenomena? That was the first podcast after our introductory one that we did. And we had talked about how we're in the 1950s period here. Now, 1955, the year I was born. But there was that uh, concerted effort coming really from the CIA influencing uh, military, all of our military branches and news media as well that... Any sorts of reports of UFOs and uh, uh, unidentified flying objects of any sort that were being, you know, reported or uh, spoken about, or turned in the the way to best handle these was to use ridicule to put this down to try to come up with some natural explanation and just brush it aside. And that's a perfect example of that. Since that Captain Thornton there was actually the executive director for the civil defense in that area for those counties, and so I think it's a shame. But again, in the history of ufology, it's nothing new. And it was nothing unusual, certainly certainly not from that period. It's a shame because you do have a very credible witness here in Mr. Lambeth and and other teachers that came out of the building, as well as the students. I like the fact that we have, yes, we have multiple student witnesses to these things, and they're young students, young children, but we also have adults in these cases. And to me, that that provides a sort of crucial backup to what the children are also seeing and saying and reporting and telling their parents and telling their family, you know, family members about. Uh, it's not just the children that we're depending on, though, here. Uh, we do have the adults that are there running the schools or teaching in the schools, and they're jumping in on this, too. And they're witnesses, and they're reporting what they saw, what they touched, what they experienced, what happened with them when they tried to light it on fire or, or when they picked it up, you know, and gave it to the, the uh, newspaper to have it sent to the school. In the other case, it's, uh, it's very, very interesting to me anyway that we have a nice mix of eyewitnesses on these first two school cases. And I, we thought these would be good cases to talk about during the podcast. And also, truthfully, I've, you know, when we read the whole book from, by Preston on schoolyard UFO encounters, these are the only two cases where you have this spiderweb-like substance coming out of a UFO, which I think is it's an incredible thing to think about. That I don't know what this mm-hmm. stuff is supposed to, you know, I don't know what it is coming out of some unidentified craft. And I wish that something like this would happen now when we have our laboratories, which would have much more sophisticated equipment. You know, the all of the technological advances that we've yeah. had since the 1950s when these two incidents, uh, you know, occurred. I would love to see uh, an example of some kind of craft, you know, um, sending out or emitting something like that uh, now so we could have a proper analysis done by by the equipment that we have. And I've jumped ahead here in my notes. I apologize for that. Very but um, here we go. it's just something I think about. But those two cases intrigued. They certainly intrigued me, Zach, when we were first talking about this because I just yes. love the idea of this stuff. I just wish I knew what exactly it was that was coming out and what what is its purpose and why did it react so strangely. So anyway... Those two cases we hope everyone has enjoyed hearing about. So now we'll move on to the third case that we want to talk about in this podcast. This third encounter occurred at the Crestview Elementary School in Opalaca, Florida, on April 6, 1967. Yes, I was in sixth grade then, I believe. Okay, (laughs) just thought I'd throw that in there. Thank you to our live audience here. Um, At around 12.45 p.m. in the afternoon that day. Six students were outside the school building with their fourth grade teacher, Mr. Robert Apfel. It was at the end of the lunch break. One of the students saw a strange-looking object in the sky and yelled for everyone to look up at it. The object at that point was only about 60 feet above them. Mr. Apfel, the fourth grade uh, teacher, said that the object definitely looked metallic. 
It was shaped like two lenses that were back to back, which is really almost another way of saying a saucer shaped craft, you know, taking two lenses and putting them together there. Uh, it hovered silently above them for a short while and then it disappeared. Now, after that happened, the students, Mr. Affle, actually went back into the school. And that was the end of the incident at that point on uh, that first day, April 6th. So the next day on April 7th, 1967, a group of girls were standing outside the school building and they saw a number of objects appear in the sky overhead. The girls all rushed back into the school shouting about the flying saucers that are outside and as other students rushed outside the building to see what was going on, they saw four what were described by many of the students, four cigar-shaped objects in the sky. They seemed to be lit up at one end by what looked like a white light. One of these objects appeared to be playing cat and mouse with an airplane that was also in the sky. The Opalaka Airport is located four miles from the school. Another one of the cigar-shaped objects was then seen descending from the sky and appeared to have landed behind a grove of trees. One student, 11-year-old Joe Cornblit, saw a, <laughs> saw <name>. a <laughs> white silvery object that was actually oval-shaped and the size of a car hovering above the streets. Some of the children actually became frightened and began crying. They ran back to Mr. Apfel's classroom, and the teacher closed the blinds in the classroom and tried to comfort the students. He asked the students what exactly they saw, and after listening to them, he then went outside himself. He looked up into the sky, and he saw, as he later stated, it was a flying saucer. Yeah. Those were his exact words. That was his, his exact words about what was happening there. Now, another fourth grade teacher named Virginia Martin came outside the school and saw what she described as, quote, a solid gleaming object, a silver white object. And she watched it descend behind that grove of pine trees nearby the school. At this point, there were about 200 boys and girls outside the school, out in the schoolyard, yelling and shouting and pointing at these objects in the sky. Now another teacher, a sixth grade teacher named Marion Waters came outside and saw what she described as a solid dark silver or what she called a dull aluminum object drop down behind that grove of trees near the school. Once again, we have multiple witnesses including both young students, but some of the adult teachers are coming out as well. Some of the students later claimed that Air Force officers arrived at the school during this incident as it went on. Fifth grade student David Bonfoy stated that we could see Army, Air Force, and state troopers in the distance watching and looking on with binoculars when school was let out that day. The two teachers, Virginia Martin and Marion Waters, both confirmed that they were questioned by Air Force officers after the incident. Marion Waters said that she was questioned by two different officers for about 20 minutes. The Miami Herald newspaper later reported that the military had issued a statement that helicopter takeoff and landing exercises had been taking place at the time of this incident and that the students and teachers had misperceived them as flying saucers. However, on the very next day, Saturday, April 8, 1967, around 40 adults who lived in the neighborhood around the school watched as three to four objects hovered in the area around that grove of trees near the school. In interviews with a reporter from the Miami News, the witnesses said that the objects changed shape from oval-shaped to cigar-shaped, and there were flashing red and white lights and transparent domes on top of these objects. That's good. I'm glad that there were multiple witnesses that also include residents from the neighborhood around the schools, as so often schools do have, you know, homes fairly close by, uh, at least in my experience they do, and I'm glad that do we have these additional 40-some adults, you know, who are, who are coming out and watching these things? The very, so it was Thursday, Friday, and now on Saturday, April 7th, uh, April 8th, excuse me, 1967, you have, you know, additional witnesses, and this time adult witnesses that are seeing and observing and watching what the children and the school teachers themselves saw. Uh, Project Blue Book, the U.S. Air Force's infamous unit, if I can say so, that investigated reports of UFOs at this time, did write about this report. They looked into it. They said they investigated it. They said that this object that was seen by the students and the teachers and all of those neighbors were nothing more than United States Coast Guard helicopters. 
Now, Project Blue Book, we haven't dwelled on that too much. I think we talked about it a little bit in our very, very first podcast, but it certainly <laughs> is a discredited operation that was uh, run by the Air Force for quite a few years that was supposed to be looking objectively and scientifically into UFO reports and UFO incidents. And unfortunately, they, they have a bad reputation overall, the project and the people that worked on Project Blue Book, and deservedly so. <laughs> There's just yeah. too many cases uh, that they just were not being objective and they didn't look into things very thoroughly and they were very quick to dismiss uh, UFOs or any kind of unidentified sighting in the sky with something that you know would be like this, a helicopter or Venus, the planet Venus or whatever. I just can't help but think that it's one thing if we only had these school children as eyewitnesses in this particular case from Florida that we're yeah. talking about in 1967. But we, we also have the teachers and we also have, you know, all of these adults in the neighborhood. This is over a three-day period now. Yeah. And I mean, what was this? Some sort of top secret exercise that the Coast Guard, whoever was, you know, uh, undertaking and involving their airports. I, I find it hard to believe that none of those adults knows exactly what a helicopter is, looks like, or the sound that helicopters make, because I certainly don't find them very quiet when they're overhead in my neighborhood in yeah. Philadelphia. We do have the, the, the newspaper, you know, the uh, news station helicopters and the police helicopters that go overhead. But I do find it kind of hard to believe that we would have that much of a misperception by so many people, by such a substantial number of eyewitnesses. Yeah, I think that it would be easier for them to dismiss it if, if it was just the students that had seen it. Yeah. And I think that what makes us more uh, of a prominent sighting is that it was multiple times over, what was it, a three-day period, yes, right? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. So uh, the first day it was the students and some of the teachers. Second day, again, it was some of the students and teachers. And then the third day, it was 40 other adults. Yeah who lived in a neighborhood around the school, they saw that these three to four objects hovered in the area. So I, I think that it's, it's way harder to dismiss this as just a helicopter practice. And why not say anything about this helicopter practice going on over the weekend if yes, that's that true. were the mm -hmm. case? Yeah. It should have been uh, more public knowledge, I would think, at some point that there was these practice landings and takeoffs going on. And you would think if they are going to be doing this in close proximity to a school, you would advise people yeah. or in close proximity to a neighborhood, you are going to kind of advise people about this because normally you would be expecting some disruption with noises and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the so-called takeoff and landing exercises. I would have thought. So I have to say, I, I, I think we both agree that in this case, we're, we're going to... Uh, put our money and support on all of these eyewitnesses, including the children, certainly the teachers and the adults in the area, and say it's a very interesting case. Uh, these, Especially with the adults, I think they definitely were seeing something that they did not identify and certainly didn't think were any kind of helicopter or plane for that matter. So a very interesting case, and again, around a school. And it does make me wonder, and we'll talk about that again in a minute here, but... When you think about UFOs, sometimes over the years when you read about UFO sightings, they can occur very quickly. Something flies by very quickly. You know, people just, they just, they barely get a glimpse of it. And yeah. you know, all kinds of speculation starts. And when you read a number of these, a good number of these school encounters that Preston Dennett reports about in his book, or you go online and look up some of the videos and, and, and uh, reports, you know, that I've read about some of these, uh, these cases. Um, I don't know. I just think... Uh, they're not trying to hide themselves. They're, they're making it rather apparent in these cases. It's not a quick flyby. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, look, there's 200 kids on the ground looking at us. <laughs> Let's fly away. Yeah. If anything, in some of these cases, you know, they're hanging. They're hovering around. They're, uh, you know, moving and playing games almost up there. Yeah. And this next case, we'll go into a little bit, of a, a little bit more detail on something like that. But there, there just seems to be an intention here of whatever these are wherever they're coming from, but they're certainly not trying to just uh, disguise or hide themselves at this point. They're definitely making it clear that, you know, we actually want you watching us. And yeah. we're gonna, at the end, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But it, it's just, it, the, the thought just keeps entering my mind as I think about all of these cases. Uh, the fourth case and the last one we want to talk about in this particular podcast, this is a case from Australia. This case here, we're going to give you an overview of its it occurred at the Westall High School in Melbourne, Australia. The case is very, very well known among ufologists. On April 6, 
1966, around 11 a.m. in the morning, a class of students and a teacher were on a sports field outside of the school building. A gray-colored, saucer-shaped craft appeared in the sky and began hovering over their school. Now, the rest of the school could hear the commotion from outside, and students and teachers came pouring out of the school building. Some area residents living in homes nearby also came outside of their homes to see what was going on. There were students who were in a science class in the Westall School there, and they had actually told people later that they had seen, looking out the windows in their classroom, they had seen two what they thought were flying discs operating up there in the skies around the school. Uh, a six-year-old student came running into their classroom shouting that there's a flying saucer outside. And, of course, that caused the <laughs> usual reaction that one would, would expect. And the science teacher thought, hey, you know, UFOs, this is science. So uh, he actually took his entire class outside to see what exactly is going on out here. So as between 200 to 300 students and teachers and neighbors of the school watched, the object descended and landed in a nearby field behind a grove of pine trees. The grove of pine trees was about a quarter mile behind the school. The six-year-old was Derek Weiss. Uh, he had been out on the swings when he saw three silver saucer-shaped objects in the sky. Uh, when he came back outside after running into the classroom, he actually went and climbed the fence that was by the grove of trees where a UFO had appeared to land. He sat on top of the fence and he claimed that a door had actually opened and three humanoid figures floated out of the UFO. They were about three feet tall and had what appeared to be hood and capes on. Their arms and legs were thin or spindly. Uh, they appeared to be a combination of gray and brown in color and had lar large black eyes and four fingers on their hands. They seemed to be wearing some sort of black uniform, and there was a silver triangular emblem on their chest. Uh, one of the humanoids communicated to Derek, and, apparently telepathically, and they said, we're not going to hurt you, but you have to come down now. Now, according to Derek, the six-year-old boy, uh, he was afraid. He refused to come down from the top of the fence. And the three creatures then turned around and floated back to their craft. The craft then rose and took back off, uh, took off back into the sky. Now, I want to stress this right now. This is very, very important. Derek was the only witness out of all of those students and the teachers who came out of the building. He was the only witness who actually reported seeing any entities during this particular incident. His report about this is controversial. Many of the other witnesses really don't believe him. Uh, but anyway, we thought we should report that because it is part of the story. It did get you know, circular around. He didn't come forward about this until some years later. And then he went on in later years to then begin uh, to claim that he began to get abducted by aliens and all that. So it's a very controversial aspect of the story. So we just wanted to note that we do want to mention it because it is only fair to... Uh, show him some respect and report what he did tell others and what he said happened. But uh, it is a very controversial point. So we'll get back to now, forgetting Derek, let's just put him aside for a minute. We'll get back to the other witnesses and the teachers. Uh, several planes approached the area in the sky above where that UFO had landed. And that's what caused, and at that time as those planes approached, that's when the object took off so quickly and went up into the sky. A uh, number of the witnesses, both students and teachers, saw that there were a number of planes in the sky, and some of them actually began to pursue the object. Meanwhile, after that object had landed and then had taken back off again, some of the students and teachers said it was only maybe about a 60-second you know, period that mm -hmm. it actually had landed on the ground. A number of the students ran to the area where the object had landed, and there they could see a big round patch of flattened, yellow grass in a swirly sort of pattern. Some students said the swirly or flattened area was about 25 to 35 feet in diameter. Now many of the witnesses, students and teachers, described the object as being about one and a half size, uh, one and a half the size of a uh, normal family sedan at that time. Almost everyone agreed it was silver in color, there were no windows, there did appear to be some lights around the bottom. Some students did report hearing a rather low buzzing sound. And there were some students at the school who did become upset by all of this that was transpiring. A few were even described as becoming hysterical during 
this particular UFO encounter at the school. Now, that same science teacher who took his entire class outside was Mr. Andrew Greenwood, and he estimated that there were about 300 students on the playground between the ages of 11 and 15 years old. He described the object as being cigar-shaped, and he said it would hover and then accelerate into the distance quickly, and then it would return. He estimated that the object was between 1,500 feet away at some point, and other times it was about 3,000 feet away. Uh, he also stated that there were five airplanes that appeared to be Cessnas, which circled the object and appeared to be playing cat and mouse, much like the last one, mm -hmm. uh, with the UFO. The entire sighting episode lasted for about 30 minutes. Uh, a resident who lived near the area of the school also reported that he saw two objects, two discs. They appeared to be smooth, me uh, smooth metal and there were no seams or joints. He said both objects landed and stayed on the ground for only a minute, and then both rose up and took off at the same time. Other residents in the area reported the same thing. According to multiple witnesses, the military showed up at the school within 30 minutes. A television news team had already arrived at the school by then. Student Joy Clark was being interviewed by a Channel 9 reporter and a cameraman. And a man in a blue uniform came right up to her and told her to stop talking now. He then told the TV news team to get out of the area. Students saw at least three military vehicles on the school grounds. Yes, that student, Joy Clark, I think she was about 12 and a half at the time this happened. Because I've seen interviews with her as an adult when she talked about this. And some of those vehicles, they were clearly military vehicles. And some were described as Jeeps or Jeep-like vehicles and other things. So, yeah, they sort of got there quickly. <laughs> And it's interesting to see how quickly they sometimes respond in these type of uh, incidents. You do wonder about that. But anyway, the principal or headmaster, after all of this had occurred, that 30-minute period or so, he called a special assembly of the entire school. Everyone was instructed by the principal during this special assembly to not talk about what had just happened. And he also told them that what everyone had just observed outside was, here we go, folks. <laughs> Just a weather balloon. That was just a weather balloon that landed and took off and flattened the grass. But anyway, it was just a weather balloon. He also told the students in no uncertain terms, and I've watched some of these students who were interviewed as adults many years later talk about this, that there is no such things as flying saucers and that anyone talking about this incident or talking about flying saucers would be given a detention. Student Joy Clark did get a detention because she had talked with <laughs> that news reporter and cameraman outside of the school before this. So chemistry teacher Barbara Rollins had actually taken some photos of the UFO. Her camera and her film were seized from her by military officers. She said that both Army and Air Force officers had come to the school. And when they found out she had used her camera, it was quickly seized along with the film and just taken. Now, the science teacher we referred to a little earlier... Uh, Mr. Greenwood, who had taken his class outside, he said that the headmaster of the school never bothered to call him out of his classroom to speak with those military officers while they were in the school after this had happened. Greenwood, on his own, did call nearby Moribin Airport, which, again, was located about four miles from the school, just like the school in, in Florida. He was told there by authorities at the airport that no planes from the airport were in the air at the time of this incident, and no pilots had ever come forward then or in all the years afterwards, since 1966, regarding uh, flying the Cessna planes that were seen near the UFOs. Shane Ryan, a UFO researcher, later interviewed witnesses for a 2010 documentary called Westall 66. Uh, 96 witnesses spoke about seeing the flying saucer. 147 witnesses spoke about the circle left on the ground by the UFO. And in this documentary, Shane asks, why did the Army and Royal Air Force and police all respond to this incident? And why was there a cover-up? About one year ago, the science teacher was... Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, about a year ago, the science teacher, Andrew Greenwood, was interviewed for the first time. He stated that after the incident, military officers actually came to his home and they threatened him. They told him that if he told anyone that the craft was a UFO... They would inform the school board that he had been drunk while on duty at the school, and that would cost him his job. Uh, 
In the Daily Mail, Australian newspaper, on May 30th, 2021, Andrew Greenwood was also was also interviewed. He explained that he was teaching year nine science at the school when this incident happened. He stated, I saw a craft, a mechanized object, intelligently controlled hovering above me. He confirmed that five small planes hovered around the object, and then within 40 minutes, Army and Air Force personnel poured into the area around the school and formed a security barrier. In this particular newspaper interview, Mr. Greenwood confirmed that about two weeks after the incident, two men did come to his home, as he said in that video interview. One was in a senior Air Force uniform and the other man was in plain clothes. But both men spoke with him and told him he was mistaken about his sighting at the school and that he should not say anything else about it. He did attempt to argue with the men, and that is when they told him, as he said in the video interview that, I, that was about, a, you know, in 2021 that was done, clearly you were drunk on duty, and you will have to be reported, and of course you will lose your job, end of quote. About a year after the incident, Dr. James McDonald, an American physicist, also met with Mr. Greenwood at his home, and he told Greenwood that he had come to interview him on instructions from President Lyndon Johnson of the United States. McDonald got involved in a number of, uh, of UFO investigations. To this day, Greenwood believes that there was a cover-up of this UFO encounter at the school, and he asked why there was never, ever an actual official investigation about this incident at the Westall School. Another thing I just want to quickly add, Zach, is that I know that some people online have sometimes questioned about, you know, when we talked about this, uh, we used the term Westall High School, and then they're saying, why are all these young kids there? But uh, from what I've read, it's just a difference in the country. This is Australia now about mm -hmm. the way they label the schools and all that. So, yes, we're used to, you know, high school being yeah. in the ninth, tenth. So it is a little bit different. So not to let that throw us off or to confuse us. But that's why that, you know, we said that about this, uh, the Westall School and, and what it was, you know, what its title or name yeah. was at that time. Well, that's that's in the American way to yeah. not, not know no, anything about other countries and certain aspects as school yeah. Personally, I don't know how that works over there. I know they call it grade one, grade two. There's different things, yeah. And you yeah, can say, yeah. and this was back in the you know the 60s yeah. also that we're talking about in this bit. Long before you were born, I might mention before you tell me. Uh, yes, but long <laughs> before you were born. So th there's all these little things we have to keep in mind. So the important thing is what actually happened, what the eyewitnesses were reporting uh, about this particular incident in that UFO at that particular school in Australia. It does make you wonder, though, why the military had to come... If this was just a weather balloon, here we go. Yeah. I mean, really. So much for a weather this balloon. Is a, why exist. are they there? Uh, why does that one military officer stop that young student, Joy, 12 and a half years old, from talking to these, you know, TV news people? Why are, why are they told to, to get going, get out of the area? Why is there an assembly? Why is everyone told to just shut up about this? If you watch that video of Mr. Greenwood, even at this day, and that was from 1966 when that happened, okay, and, and in 2021 when he's being interviewed, you can still see the anger and the outrage, how uh, offended and insulted he was by those, uh, those two gentlemen. One was clearly a military officer coming to his home and basically bullying him and threatening him, you know, trying to silence him. And here we are to this day. He's still angry about that. It really did happen. Rightfully so. And he uh, resents it, and he wished he would have been called by the headmaster or principal. That's the title they use, the headmaster of the school. Uh, you know, while those military people were in school, he was back in his classroom with his students. That's what they were told to do after the special assembly. But he would have loved to have been, you know, to talk to them right then and there uh, at the school since he was an actual eyewitness himself and went out there and observed all that he observed and, and did report on later and has continu and continued to tell people in the years after that, right up until a year ago when that, that interview was done by both the newspaper and then the video interview that was done along with that. So it's kind of sad. It's uh, Also, uh, I would tell everyone, I've watched uh, online, you can find uh, actual videos on YouTube and elsewhere with some of these children that were at the Westall School that are now, you know, they're in my age, you know, they're in their 60s or something. So their parents, their grandparents, their lives went on. They had to go to school. They had to get their jobs and careers going, raise their families. And I watched a number of them being interviewed on the one video. It was a news program, sort of like one of those talk show formats like we have in this mm -hmm. country. Uh, it was a, a number of the women, grown women now, women in their 60s, and they're still angry and they still resent the cover-up of what happened. They resent being told it was a weather balloon. They resent being told to keep their mouths shut. 
that there's no such thing as flying saucers. And this had an effect on them that has lasted until this day. It really has changed the way they look at the world and look at, at, at things that are happening in their lives. You know, even to today, from that very early age, they were definitely uh, negatively affected and impacted by the treatment they received as students in the school about this incident with all these multiple witnesses of students, hundreds of students and teachers, and they're basically being told, what you just saw, you didn't see. It was just the weather balloon and... Stop it, shut your mouths, and uh, get back to class and forget that this ever happened. So, with that being said, here are some of the conclusions that we came to about UFOs encounters at schools. Uh, when reviewing these cases and the other cases listed in Preston's book, there are a few conclusions that can be drawn. These UFOs seem to be intentionally putting on a display. Uh, it is fair to think that there is an attempt to convince the children of the reality of UFOs. The vast majority of the cases involve multiple witnesses. There have been a variety of shapes reported for the UFOs, cigar-shaped mm -hmm. saucers or cylinders, oval and egg-shaped objects. And the UFOs are generally silver-colored, as you noticed. Uh, sometimes they have portholes, sometimes they may have other colors or lights on the bottom of them. Uh, many of the incidents reported, we only went through these couple right now, many of the incidents uh, certainly prompt a military response, if nothing else. And as adults, these children remember these experiences vividly, like those ladies from the Westall incident that I watched being interviewed. And that was some years ago when that interview was done, and I saw the uh, resentment and the anger on their faces about, again, everything, the way they were treated. Uh, they remember the experiences vividly, and sometimes the experiences have ended up changing their worldviews. Now, I just want to mention here, there's another case that Zach and I are going to be talking with everyone about. We'll have our conversation about. We decided not to include it with these cases. We don't want any one podcast to go too long. And some of you may be familiar with this case, some of you who are watching us right now or listening to us, if you are. Uh, and that is the case that took place in Zimbabwe, known as the Aerial school incident and Zach and I decided rather than try to just you know we don't want to rush through that particular incident that is a fascinating incident and there's a lot of information we want to go over about that particular school encounter including the landing of the craft and the beings the humanoids whatever you want to call them uh, on that craft actually coming out of the craft and telepathically communicating with the children uh, we're going to go into that in more detail. We'd rather do that separately, following up on this particular podcast here. We just thought these four cases would be very interesting examples from the book that we read and from other information that we looked at. We thought these would be kind of interesting cases to start off with about a very unique subset of UFO encounters, and that's specifically encounters around schools and schoolyards. Uh, and we think these four, you know, were probably the best examples we could pull out of Preston's book. As we said, some of the other ones are, they're interesting, but they're very brief, so we don't have a whole lot of information to give. When you were talking about some of those names of people, Zach, <laughs> some of the things I was just thinking, all of that information is really being gleaned from newspaper articles that were written about these uh -huh. incidents at the time they happened. The, I know Preston has a tremendous amount of documentation in the book at the back, you know, showing you where he's getting that information from on each of these incidents, the names and the descriptions and all that, the interviews with some of the eyewitnesses at the time in these cases, both in the 1950s and the 60s. So, yeah, there's there's documentation out there. There's things that have happened. Uh, sometimes they were reported, but they were only reported locally. They weren't exactly deemed worthy of national news at that time. So people were not hearing about these on the evening television news as it was broadcast back in the 50s or 60s. And I can tell you, television evening news was not like it is today. It was it could be a much briefer sometimes. The national news program was only like 15 minutes in the evening, things yeah. like that. So I remember as a boy, they would only be on so much. So yeah, it's a shame. The cases weren't necessarily getting the kind of coverage that something like this, if it happened today, would be getting, and especially today with social media <laughs> and 24 hours, seven day a week, you know, news coverage on the cable news programs and, and the national networks too as well. Uh, I think we would, it would be much more attention, but at this time, it's a shame, you know, they just weren't getting the kind of attention that I think they would deserve based on the number of witnesses and the interesting facts about the encounters, especially those ones with that spider web like substance. I just, I still think that that's kind of, those, those ones in particular just fascinate me because I would love to know what that stuff was. 
and there was so much of it to fall for yeah. 45 minutes and cover acres of land and telephone wires and cars and grass. I'm just, I'm just intrigued. I just am fascinated by that and the way these things, strange things happen. But I do think that, unlike many other UFO encounters, these are cases where they don't mind being seen. They seem to be trying to draw the attention of children. I watched an interview recently with uh, one man who has done uh, several UFO documentaries and he was being interviewed on a podcast. And I, you know, I heard him saying, this is James Fox, he's done, he's done uh, some very, very good work in, in, uh, in the area of documentaries on UFOs. And he was just saying when he was asked, you know, why do you think they would come around schools like the Zimbabwe case that we're going to be talking about, the aerial school incident or these other incidents? And he did say that, you know, uh, number one, at least at the time these incidents happened, uh, you know, there's certainly a safety factor that could come in as opposed to coming around a military base or mm. everybody said that they're not going to be having weapons pointed at them or, you know, serious military weapons, things like that, that there might be a, a calmer, uh, you know, atmosphere or environment for them to appear in. I also think it's because they are trying to reach out to younger people who don't have all of those restraints that we or constraints that we adults you know have as we as we get older in life and we you know we we start to form very firm opinions about things or firm biases develop within us as a result of our life experiences and that uh, i don't doubt that there would be i don't know i'm just speculating here but whoever these beings are these humanoids whoever it is that's operating these unidentified craft we really don't know who they are where they're coming from but they certainly seem to be willing to put on a display for young people you know, that would give these young people something to think about and possibly make them a little bit more open-minded about the reality of what they're seeing and observing here. Yeah. And I, hopefully changing their outlook on the entire aspect of, you know, are UFOs false like that? Headmaster was trying to tell all the students, but because of what those students experienced, no matter what he said, no, they didn't, they didn't buy into that at all. That wasn't, they weren't willing to go along with that, even into their adult years. Yeah, I think, I think it's mostly because children are more susceptible to be mm -hmm. uh what's the word i'm looking for here uh influenced in a mm -hmm. certain way so uh luke real quick how are we doing on time uh, okay perfect okay. uh i just really this is going to be kind of my closing statement here sure. um so all these cases kind of have similar um, endings, essentially. Uh, the military comes, and they <laughs> kind of just shut things down, and, and they try and keep things hush-hush. And like I said, these children are impressionable, and uh, of course, it would be very easy for debunkers to say that, oh, they're children, they don't know what they're talking about. And I'll try, I'll play devil's advocate here a little bit. Sure. Um I know that, it, like I said, it's easy for these debunkers to say that these children are, are, are impressionable or they're seeing things that maybe aren't actually there. Um, but then I think of it as these adults are also seeing it, so it backs it up a little bit more, backs up their evidence of seeing these things. Good point. And these children, like I said, they're young. And uh, with, with that one case, Derek, uh, that, that was his name, correct? Yes, Derek, the boy, yeah. Him seeing the humanoid figures come out of the, the aircraft, that is easy to kind of dismiss because mm -hmm. he was the only one to see it. But I think that the amount of people that saw all the other stuff, I think that's hard to just kind of be able to debunk and to say Very that good. this didn't actually happen. So I believe these people, and I think that, these military figures are trying to cover up something that they have no control over, and that's what they're doing. It's it's kind of like a quality control or, or crowd control or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I think that these incidences actually happen, and it's not a case of mass hysteria or it's not a case of a, a weather balloon or anything of that sort. I think that it's it's these children are seeing things, and I don't think these can really be debunked other than the dare kids seeing the humanoid figures come out of right. the craft. Good point. And another thing I want to say is, again, with young kids in, in elementary school and middle school and stuff, I personally don't remember anything from elementary school or anything like that that wasn't a prominent time, like if I had a big fall at recess or something like that. So I feel that these kids would remember something like this. Yeah. And I've definitely read cases 
and I'll use 9-11 as, as an example, where people experience something and it's so shocking and it's something that they're not used to that when they do an interview that the day it happened, it changes after a little while. Every mm-hmm. time they get interviewed about it, a little detail changes here, a little detail changes there. Right. But, I mean, it seems that they're kind of sticking to their story and nothing really changed. So, again, that's me trying to play devil's advocate here with mm-hmm. the debunkers. Uh, it it just seems to me that there's there's no way to really debunk what these people saw. I mean, you can always just say whatever. Right, but, right. Mm-hmm. But again, I believe them, and I think that these are four very good cases for very good encounters at schools. Mm-hmm. And I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I think that it was a very good episode it was four shorter stories so i yeah. think it was easier for some people to kind of follow follow yeah, along and, and enjoy it. yeah enjoy the stories yeah and it kind of gave different it was a little bit different times it was like a maybe a 12 year span between all of them mm-hmm. combined so i think that it was it was a nice little thing where we could see different places in the world and how these these different areas of the world all had kind of the same exact experience the first two being the spider web kind of substance cotton candy substance that came out of these these unidentified flying objects if you will Mm -hmm. um and then the last two with the flying objects and the military coming i mean they all kind of are very similar in their own in their own ways but they're also different Mm -hmm. again in their own ways so and i think that it was it was also um, very good that they all kind of had explanations of what they were seeing in the air, mm-hmm. whether it was the cigar shaped or the egg shaped yeah. or the saucer cylinder, whatever you want to call it. I think that that's also another prominent thing that definitely makes them stand out in their own sense because it's not like, oh, this person had a sighting here and this person had a sighting here and the details are kind of all the same. The details are different, yeah. so it also it makes them unique in their own sense. Yeah, I'm always intrigued by the variety of descriptions <laughs> of the of the shapes of some of these crafts. It's not all saucer shaped. Yeah, and you know that that whole title that you you know that term that used to be used, flying saucers. You know, from starting in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. Uh, first reported these flying craft that he saw while he was flying his plane. We'll go into that in a whole other podcast. But, you know, the term flying saucer caught on in the, you know, the news reporters that were covering this. And, uh, but you're not just hearing about saucer-shaped objects. You are hearing about other shapes. The silver seems to be very common, silver or white silver and all of that as far as the color goes. But the thing is, when you look at these cases, I mean, and these are from decades ago, I mean, the, why Zach and I are talking about this and having our conversation with ourselves and with everyone listening or watching us now is we can't say to you, oh, this is concrete evidence or proof we don't have concrete. Nobody has this concrete. I can't take you to the, where any of these landed and show you the flattened grass or the burned grass or, you know, any of the, any of the things that these eyewitnesses saw. I, we're just looking at this as here are reports that were made and, they were, they were, and people have talked about what happened to them now in the years since these incidents all happened. And what we're trying to do is just be as objective and fair as possible and listening to all sides, really. But we're listening to the witnesses with respect and we're listening to the detail information coming from the witnesses. And yeah, we're a little bit more impressed, of course, with the information coming from teachers or adults or people in the neighborhood that, you know, that are older than the students. But we're listening to all of them with respect. But we're not saying that, oh, therefore, this is proof positive. Nobody has that. We're just saying, let's look at what we do know, what was reported, what was said. Look at these people who decades later are, are you know, sticking by their guns here and they're not backing down. They're still maintaining, no, this is what happened. This is what we saw. I especially think of that teacher, Mr. Greenwood, because I could just see the, the anger in his face when he was being interviewed on that one videotape about the way he was treated and threatened, which, I mean, I know I would resent that bitterly if I yeah. was a teacher trying to educate young people. And I have these guys coming in and telling me, shut your mouth or we're going to f- report yeah that you were drunk on duty, drunk on the job, and this is going to cost you your job. Why? For a weather balloon that was outside? That seems to me to be a very extreme way to be handling this situation with this particular science teacher from this school, the Westall School in Australia. That's a pretty strong reaction. And here he is talking about that in 2021, you know, all these decades after it happened. So you know his dander is still up when this subject comes up and yeah. he's talking about it. He's pretty angry about this now. He's still angry at this point because it is. It's a very unfair way for him to have been treated 
it was unfair to treat the students that way. And when I watched the interviews of some of the ladies who were young girls, you know, at the school at that time, including that, you know, the young lady Joyce that we were talking about, you know, they were, they're annoyed, they're angry. To this day, they're still angry about that. Of course, that, that tape might have been from like the 1990s when they were being interviewed at that point or, or early 2000s, the one videotape I was watching. But they're still angry. They're very angry, and I could see it in them, and, I, and they were expressing themselves very clearly. So, no, we're not saying this is about evidence, but I agree. I, I happen to think that when I look at all of this, and there's more information in the book than what we were able to go you know, through in our overview. We can never cover all the details, yeah. or we'll be here for hours on end and then nobody will want to watch us because we'll fall asleep trying to talk about all this stuff. But uh, I, I do tend to agree. I looked at these cases. I think all of them were impressive based on the, uh, the testimony and the reports of the multiple eyewitnesses and all that. I think they were good cases for us to choose. And the case that we'll be talking about and I think possibly the very next podcast, we'll see if we can do that, would be that aerial school case because we need some time to go through a lot of information about that multiple witness sighting at that school in Zimbabwe in Africa. There's a new documentary that just came out very recently on that particular incident. It's a two-hour documentary. And I actually want to watch that with you, and you know, we'll go through that as something else as we're preparing our notes and, and our uh, overview about that incident for everybody that joins us here in the, in the attic for our podcast. So we, I look forward to working on that case. That's a, that's a very interesting case, and uh, Preston does devote quite a few pages in his book to that particular, I think more pages than any other incident in his book to that particular incident, because it's probably the most interesting incident of all of them that happened, and it did involve the landing and actual communications with some of the students. All right, well, with that being said, as always, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you're feeling generous, please leave us a five-star review and maybe put a little comment. And yeah, real quick, one more thing. I know the past couple episodes we've been missing him. I just want to go grab him real quick. Um, yes, our mascot. Don't drop him. Uh. All right. You can see him here. I think I'm going to name it myself since nobody's been commenting, but it's okay. I'm going to go with the name Hubert. Uh, if anybody doesn't like that name, you can go ahead and comment, and maybe we can change it. Um, we can head back to this camera. You can see him from a far distance. Uh, Hubert and all of his uh, glory here. Um, yeah, like I said, I hope you guys enjoy this episode here. I'm going to just kind of put him What a very him. human name to put pick for that, uh, that humanoid. Put him off. Name him something like Klaatu, you know, from <laughs> a great science fiction movie of the 50s, you know. Klaatu or something, something, Hubert? Wow. I don't know. I thought hey, that fits him. Whatever. I don't care what you name him. Like I said in one of the earlier podcasts, when you're not around, I throw a towel over it. I cover him so he's not staring at me with those big black eyes and scaring me. We do hope everyone enjoyed our overview. Like we've told you before, you know, we know that not everybody has the time that I have or the ability or the interest, you know, in reading all these books that, that I certainly like to go through. So we always try to give you a basic overview and gist of any of the books that we're using in preparation for our podcast so that you don't have to worry about that. We just want you to come into the attic and relax and, and enjoy listening to our conversation about whatever the subject is. Yeah. And we hope that in this case, you've, we've given you, I mean, there's a lot more stories and, and information in the book. Uh, and maybe in the future, we'll do some other cases too in, in a different podcast besides the aerial school one that we're going to be doing next. But anyway, we gave you what, what we thought were the most interesting cases from the book. Just gives you a little something different to think about from, like we said, that particular subset of UFO encounters that only involves UFO encounters that are in the vicinity of schools and schoolyards. So thank you all for joining us. We hope you'll come back again, and we'll see you all next time here in Uncle Mark's Attic.